Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. As I mentioned on our last podcast, we're kind of shifting the First Freedom Podcast to focus on books and book reviews. It's something our committee talked about wanting to do, about rec- to recommend books. So I've been talking to members of, of the Committee for Religious Liberty and some of our consultants about books they recommend. Um, we're talking to authors of those books, and in the future, we may even talk to bishops themselves about some of the books that have influenced them. So when I asked Bishop Rhodes, who is our chair-elect, he will take over here actually in just a few weeks after the November meeting in Baltimore. I asked Bishop Rhodes what he would recommend, and he said that we should discuss religion and the American constitutional experiment fifth edition, and that we should talk about it with Richard Garnett of the University of Notre Dame, who is one of the contributors to the most recent edition. Professor Garnett uh, teaches and writes in areas of constitutional law, criminal law, First Amendment, law and religion. He's a leading authority on questions and debates regarding religious freedom and church-state relations. And he is the founding director of Notre Dame Law School's program on church, state, and society. Now, to be sure, he is an accomplished legal scholar, but another thing I want to add to all that is that he has been an extraordinarily generous friend to this committee. He contributed a couple chapters to a textbook that has taken way too long to actually get published, but it looks like it is going to be published, and we'll be able to put out the put that out here in just a couple months, but it actually is in the work, So, and he helped us a great deal with getting that put together. Uh, whenever I have a question for him, he's always very in a very timely way, gets back in touch with me, which I is something that I definitely appreciate. And so I'm just really grateful for him. And I'm happy that we get to have this discussion today. So, Professor Garnett, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me and for all the work that you do. So Religious Freedom and the American Constitutional Experiment, fifth edition. It's edited by you, as well as John Witt Jr. and Joel Nichols. Um, first, tell us what this book aims to do. It's something of a textbook, um, but what are, what are you aiming to do, and, and who do you envision as kind of the main audience for it, who will benefit from it the most? Yeah, sure. Um, I should say right out of the gate that it was a real uh, honor for me to come on board this book for the fifth edition. Uh I actually reviewed the first edition when I was a brand new law professor more than 20 years ago. And back then it was um, the sole author was uh, John Witte. But uh, and John Witte's been a mentor to me for decades. He's one of America's greatest church state scholars. And uh, I, w- I, w- I was just uh, honored to be asked to, to come on board and to um, share some some thoughts and make some contributions uh, of my own to this fifth edition. So I'm really happy about it. Um, it's, uh, you know, in our view, this is a book that can, and we hope will have a, um, a wide audience. It's not limited to specialists. Um, it's appropriate for, um, law students, practitioners, college students, and frankly, even, um, I I would think, uh, advanced high school students and, and just engage citizens across the board. It's, it's accessible. Um, it's about some history, but you don't have to be a historian to, to get it. And it's about, a lot of legal cases, but you don't have to be a lawyer. The cases are presented in terms that are designed to make them understandable to lay people. And the book is set up in such a way that it puts America's 
legal doctrines about religious freedom and church-state relations in broader context in terms of history and current developments and big picture themes. Um, but it also, I think, does a, a, a good job of presenting in an accessible way what those legal doctrines are. Um, so our, our hope, I suppose, like all authors, is that we're not just talking to specialists and professors, but that we're talking to our fellow citizens about an aspect of the American experiment that we think is vitally important. Yeah, you know, one of the nice things about it, I think, is that it's not it's it's brief enough so that the, the presentations of some, of all these key Supreme Court cases, it's not getting into it's not you don't get too bogged down in some of the issues and all of them. It get, it lays out just the very basics of those those cases. It seems or that's part of what I, I like about it, like, as you say, for citizens and especially when you hear people just refer to these cases, especially lawyers who are familiar with them, almost the way that like, you know, some Christians can just rattle off Bible verses um, that, you know, like, oh, that's a Matthew 25 kind of thing. It's sort of like that's that's how lawyers can do that with with different um, cases. And this this is if you wanted a book that would get you up to speed in about as quick a way as you could on on that type of talk. I think that this is a does a pretty good job of that myself. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that. That that's certainly what we were aiming for. I mean, as you might imagine, there's a there's a lot of detail that ends up on the cutting room floor with a project like this. Again, you know, John Whitty's been writing about this stuff for for four decades, but we do believe that you know any engaged citizen could pick up this book without really knowing anything about uh, American church state law or religious freedom law, and by the end would have a pretty good sense of what the what the shape of the American experience in this area has been. Mm-hmm. So when you say textbook, are you saying that the this would be accessible to perhaps even high schoolers or for an older audience? I, I really do. I, I mean, you know, I've had um, three high school kids so far, and uh, I certainly believe that it would be something that you could have, you know, in a for juniors and seniors who were doing like an AP history type class or uh, a theology class, perhaps like at my local high school here in, in South Bend. Um, I mean, I've, I've been very impressed at uh, how well those students perform. So I, I think it could work for them as well. At the same time, it, it is a book that we've been pleased. Um, you know, scholars and specialists and judges have engaged it and um, wrestled with it. And, um, you know, we hope benefited from it. Um, not everybody agrees with us, obviously, but uh, we, we think it works for a lot of different audiences. And, and again, it's about a theme that is, it's, it's, this is not an esoteric or kind of niche thing. I mean, one of our animating beliefs is that when you think about the American constitutional order as being an experiment, as something that the founding generation was keenly aware um, was going to be new in the world, you know, a, a written constitution that constrained government and divided powers and protected liberties in a pluralistic society. This was a new thing. And um, our belief is that religion was not peripheral to this. The religious faith and religious freedom were right at the heart of it. And so in the early chapters, which are more historical, again, they're, they, they move along pretty pretty well, but we really try to underscore that you know, the debates in the 1700s about whether America should be independent and what our constitutional democracy should look like, um, those were not always entirely secular debates uh, among kind of 
philosophers and lawyers. I mean, a lot of the constitutional argumentation and revolutionary argumentation in America was among um, ministers and clergy. And uh, religious freedom wasn't something tacked on at the end. It was a it was an animating uh, uh, sort of spirit, if you want, of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the thinking that went into the the shape that our constitution takes. Well, and to follow up on that, I mean, you, I mean, this is one of the things your book talks about is that there are these different religious communities that played a role in the origins of, of our constitutional experiment. Yeah. That one religious group sort of dominated on this front, which sometimes I think you kind of can see in, in a lot of public discourse kind of caricatured views of things of the founding of like, well, this is this kind of nation that this is the the founders were all deists or the founders were all or the puritans had this and it's always sort of like one group is given all the credit by whoever wants to caricature the founding yeah. in some way so can you talk a little bit yeah. about different groups? you know i mean um you really hit on it i think one of the one of the really valuable contributions uh of this book ever since uh professor witty's first edition has been uh that Without being too long, this book really expands and enriches the story. So as you pointed out, a lot of times people imagine that America's religious freedom experiment kind of just emerged from the forehead of Thomas Jefferson uh, or th some debates that happened in Virginia in the late 1700s are given overwhelming significance, including by the Supreme Court uh, for many years. Um, but that's just inaccurate. I mean, the Virginia experience was important, but it was really just one experience. Um, Thomas Jefferson, although obviously very important, uh, was only one figure, and he was actually kind of marginal on this issue um, in terms of the First Amendment itself. Obviously, he, he played a big role in Virginia. But one of the things we do, and the image in the book, which Professor Witte came up with, I wish I could say that I had, uh, is... Um, picture a, a tent like those little things you set up on the sidelines of your kid's soccer game and there's you know there's four corners of the of the tent four pillars holding it up um and he, he makes the point that the america's religious freedom experiment at the founding is kind of like that in the sense that there's a, a broad canopy of debate about religious freedom that is being sustained by four sometimes overlapping but but distinct groups one of these groups is like you said the kind of Enlightenment, maybe deist um, thinkers like Thomas Jefferson, some of his colleagues in Virginia, and so on. Um, you, you do have obviously Puritan influence coming down from the beginning, but also still very prominent in um, the 1700s. And these were folks who would have had different views than Jefferson. They would have thought that it was, you know, America was not supposed to be kind of a God-free zone. That we had, we were sort of a providential nation in a sense. But there were others as well. You have a group that we call the Civic Republicans, um, small R. And the point there is that there was a broad appreciation among people, regardless of their own religious beliefs, that that religious faith and religious freedom were good for a democracy, that it helped pr to produce good citizens, and it helped to sustain civil peace. And then finally, we talk about a group um, that often does get overlooked, and these are, um, we call it the evangelicals, but these are mainly Protestant religious believers, but who dissent from the idea of, you know, Church of England style establishments. You can think of early Baptists and so on. In fact, an ancestor of mine was a, a Baptist minister who was put in prison in Virginia for preaching without a license, um, which was actually a thing back then. So, so we say, but we broaden the story by saying it's not just Virginia, it's not just Jefferson, it's a broader conversation with a lot of themes. And that 
our theory is that you know a tent stands up better when it's got something holding up all four corners than just one. Um, the other way we broaden the story, I think, and this is kind of historical, is we we kind of pull the lens out a little bit and we say the American religious freedom experiment didn't start with the Declaration of Independence or the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom or what have you. Um, we tie it to you know long-standing debates and often you know bloody battles uh, that take place uh, in Europe and long before. I mean, in a way, American thinking about church-state relations and religious freedom um, goes back to the New Testament at least. Uh, and we talk about conflicts between popes and emperors and bishops and kings. Um, in our view, you know, St. Thomas Beckett and St. Thomas More are a part of the story just as much as John Adams and um, Thomas Jefferson. I don't think that the book does go, at least not in that chapter, as much of, about the issue of like what the role that Catholics play in the in the experiment. But, um, you know, we've had Michael Breidenbach on on the podcast to talk about our dear bought liberty yeah. um and, and he kind of has the, this argument about the role that maryland catholics played uh in thinking through some of these i wonder if you might comment on that just for our since this is a podcast it's going to be mostly catholic listeners yeah um you know what some of your thoughts on on the role that catholics have played in that well i uh i, I really appreciated michael's book actually and it, it does fill out an important part of the story and, and as you say we don't dwell on it much i mean we, we mentioned obviously that um, Maryland and the Carols in particular would have um, would have played a role. And, you know, it's also a fact that can't really be avoided that um, uh, uh, for many Americans uh, in the 1700s, Catholicism was viewed with some suspicion, to put it mildly. Um, you know, one of the one of the complaints that uh, the founding fathers had in the Declaration of Independence was that they were they were mad that the English had given the Catholics religious freedom up in Canada. Um, and so that that's part of the dynamic, and we we talk some about that too. But uh, but you're certainly right to point out, and this is consistent with our image of the canopy that there are these different voices. Um, and uh, I mean, interestingly, the Catholics, uh, and, and again, there weren't very many uh, in America in the 1700s, but the Catholics uh, who, who there were um, would have kind of sort of shared the view of a lot of the um, uh, people in these other camps, especially if you think about it, the um, maybe ironically the the evangelical dissenters who didn't want to have a church of england style establishment right that that wasn't going to work in our in our favor and of course as america grows and you think about french influence and then later in the southwest and of course certainly in florida the catholic church is going to be more of a more of a presence but i um maybe to compliment michael's book i I just, I just think that when you connect the american experiment which basically involves protecting religious freedom by also protecting the freedom of the church that taps into ancient Catholic themes of political theology. Mm -hmm. Professor Garnett, apparently there is a, um, today, I just saw this press release that, um, you know, we're from the USCCB, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the International Religious Freedom Act. And anyway, in this, this press release was fascinating to learn. There's this uh, statistic, it quotes that it says 80% of the world's inhabitants live in countries where there are high levels of government or societal restrictions on religion. You know, you, 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 use, you keep using the phrase American experiment, right? And I guess my question is, how does the American, and in particular, Catholic, the American experience of Catholics in this country, right? Like, how can all of that, are there any areas where that is informing 
efforts in other areas of the country to loosen some of these restrictions on religious liberty. I mean, I don't know if you cover that in your book or not, but I'm just curious your your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, so we do have uh, a kind of a concluding capstone chapter, which tries to sort of look around where we are right now and get a sense of um, what's the state of play, both in America and abroad, and to identify some potential challenges and threats. you know, you mentioned the anniversary uh, of the law, which has done a lot of important work, especially just in raising awareness about the ongoing depressing levels of religious uh, persecution or at least limitations around the world. I mean, one takeaway for our book is that even though, I mean, I'm a lawyer, I do a lot of religious freedom cases. I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to some to context here in America where there might be challenges to religious freedom. But boy, when you look at around the world, uh, one message has to be gratitude for what we have here. I think that's gratitude that uh, Catholics should feel, even though obviously America wasn't founded as a Catholic country or anything like that, um, that I think the American experiment providentially is one that aligns pretty well. And I think, um, you know, the popes ever since Leo XIII have appreciated this, that actually aligns pretty well with the American experiment. But again, when you look at the world and you see, I mean, you know, you just add China and India, and you've already got a pretty big part of the world's population that are often living in instances of of religious unfreedom, especially if one thinks about the what's happening to the the Uyghurs uh, in China. But I, I would also lift up, you know, what's um, the ongoing interference with the Catholic Church and with our self government and with our selection of bishops and um, you know efforts in the PRC to basically have kind of a state run Catholic Church. We've seen the Church has seen this before in our history, of course, but um, I think I don't think those things are consistent with with religious freedom properly understood. So if you think about what's the what's the Catholic proposal now, especially since the Second Vatican Council uh, and Dignitatis Humanae, it's that, you know, every human being, because he or she is a human being, has the right to religious freedom, which means the right to search after God in this world and be happy with him in the next. Um, And we believe that God wants to be embraced, loved, sought voluntarily. So that document does reject government coercion in matters of religion. And I, I think that's that was a very important uh, statement. But interestingly, the Catholic proposal in Dignitatis, and of course, um, the late Pope Benedict and also St. Pope John Paul II talked about this a lot in their own writing. They, they understood that you can have a secular government, right? A government that respects religious freedom for all a government that doesn't impose a particular religion. But that doesn't mean that society has to be scrubbed of religious belief, activity, arguments, practice, right? You can have a public square where religion is welcome and still have a government that respects limits on its power and doesn't interfere with internal church business. Um, So the Second Vatican Council's document uh, has a very important sections, which are sometimes overlooked, emphasizing the freedom that the church enjoys to conduct its evangelical work, to operate its ministries, its hospitals, its schools, to choose its own clergy, uh, to, to select its own liturgy, and so on. These are foundational freedoms, crucial, right? Um, and the American church-state experiment, correctly understood, in my view, uh, especially in recent years, is, is appreciating that. Well, one of the the kind of key contributions of the book is to identify these six principles of religious liberty. We're sort of talking around them or or just assuming them up to this point, but I wonder if you could just go ahead and 
lay those out. What are the the six principles that you identify? Six principles of religious liberty that you, that yeah. you all identify, and and then maybe just give us. You know, you don't have to go through them one by one, but maybe a, what you see is a couple of the really big ones where they've played out in some of these cases that you that you outline in the book. Sure. No, that's a. Um, I appreciate that, Aaron. It's another example of of how the book tries to take stories that are sometimes too narrow and simplified and to uh, broaden them. So, you know, we we broaden from just the Virginias to the four corners of the tent. Uh, we broaden from just focusing on post-1776 to going all the way back to uh, the Gospels. And here, with respect to these multiple principles, we say, look, you don't want to you don't want to reduce the American First Amendment and the American religious freedom experiment more generally to sort of one rule or one principle. So some people, for example, would say, well, what that experiment is, is just the separation of church and state, period. And and they would forget to talk about, well, what about the free exercise of religion, right? Um, and we talk about some others. So I'll, I'll list them and then I'll say a bit. But we talk about the liberty of conscience, which again, the, the freedom to believe as one wants to believe, as one feels called to believe, uh, but also the free exercise of religion, focus on that word exercise. This means that religious liberty also has to include the ability not just to believe what you want, but within limits um, imposed by the common good to act in accord with your religious belief. But that's free exercise. We lift up this idea of religious pluralism, which has a couple dimensions. On the one thing you could say, well, geez, wouldn't it be better if everybody believed the same thing? And this side of heaven, that's not going to happen anymore. But we think that the American experiment has accepted the fact that um, we do have pluralism in religious matters um, and that the state can respect that. The state can um, uh, even support that and that that that's, that could be a source of strength rather than a source of, of um, uh, unsettlement or division. The next principle was religious equality. So even though religion is welcome in the public square, uh, and even though religious believers are entitled to participate as full citizens, um, we also have this kind of neutrality rule that you can't pick and choose among religions when you're acting in your official government capacity. So, you know, I guess an, ex uh, an example we see a lot in in law is, you know, if, um, if we're going to have a school choice program, which um, thanks be to God, we're seeing more of them. The government could and they're permissible, but it wouldn't be permissible to say, well, only Lutheran schools can participate. That would violate religious equality. Fifth principle, separation of church and state, which doesn't mean what some people think it means. It doesn't mean a God-free public square. It doesn't mean excluding religion from public discourse or silencing religious actors when they leave the church on Sunday or they, you know, they, they leave the synagogue on Saturday. Separation of church and state properly understood, as the late Pope Benedict often wrote, it means that the, the political authority and the church are distinct Right. Over here, the president doesn't pick the bishops and the bishops don't set the tax rate. Um, but that's a that's a religious freedom principle, because it means that we get to pick our own doctrines. We get to pick our own liturgies. We get to pick our own ministers and priests. You know, in some in some nations, even today, the church has to get government permission in order to admit somebody to seminary or to ordain them to the priesthood. And that violates the principle of separation of church and state correctly understood. But separation doesn't mean no cooperation. So for a long time, people thought, and here's an example of a case uh, that you asked about, Aaron. For a long time, people thought church-state separation means public resources can never be used to help parents send their kids to parochial schools. Um, and that was the law, you know, for a while. That's been a long-running fight in the United States, as you know, going back for more than a century. But now the law is really clear on this. 
that um, cooperation doesn't violate the separation rule, that it's completely permissible for uh, governments and religious institutions to cooperate in doing things like providing health care, helping settle refugees, fighting human trafficking, and funding uh, parochial schools. So we're seeing an explosion in, in uh, school choice programs around the country. And I think this is a really welcome development. And then the final principle we talk about, which is related, is disestablishment, meaning in the United States, the church is meaningfully distinguished from the government and there isn't an official religion or church. Properly understood, this isn't a anti-religious principle, it's a religion protecting principle because if the government establishes something, that means it controls it. And so this is a this establishment is a principle of church freedom as Dignitatis Humanae call for. So those are our six principles. And I guess the key takeaway, and again, we, we describe examples in the book and we, we, we don't, these aren't all um, separate. They overlap often, they reinforce each other. But the key thing to appreciate is that you can't reduce the appropriate um, religious freedom regime to just kind of, you know, one ring to rule them all, one, one cliche. There's going to be different principles in play. And we yeah. think that that's what the cases show you. I think it seems like in my time here at the Bishop's Conference, there have been a number of different types of religious liberty issues that we've had to deal with. And you've identified one of the bigger ones is, is the issue of, you know, funding for like how, how we can, how our programs or church, the work of the church can sometimes how we cooperate with the government in terms of like, you know, funding for parochial schools or, you know, funding for our, our various, our programs to, to resettle refugees and immigrants and that sort of thing. Um, probably the other big set of issues often has to do where we come in conflict with activists who are pushing for, uh, you know, different sexual orientation and gender identity, non-discrimination type laws, yeah. which then leads to sort of uh, a, another a, a question then that I have. And that is um, about the, this issue of exemptions, um, because oftentimes the, the around surrounding that whole set of, of cases and that issue, there's often kind of a push to say, well, we can accept the non-discrimination uh, law, but then as long as we can get exemptions for ourselves, that's been sort of a push in that area. Um, so anyway, so this has been a hot button issue, I take it, in the religious yeah. liberty space is issues about exemptions. And last month, um, we spoke with your colleague, Philip Munoz, about his book, Religious Liberty in the American Founding. Uh, we, we, I should say, we did not plan to have two uh, domers right in a row. Uh, that that just sort of worked out this way. Yeah, I'm suspicious. Um, <laughs> no, I think, it, it, but it's actually, I like it that we kind of are having this, that we are talking to having two podcasts where we're actually talking about somewhat um, to, to colleagues who who work in similar who do similar kinds of work in some ways although he's coming from more of the political science angle i think but um but anyway all that to say um you know i, I can imagine y'all have had these discussions in the proverbial faculty lounge um but like in reading your book i detect that there may be a little bit of tension around this issue of religious exemptions uh you know the this book seems to be um, or a little bit more favorable view of exemptions uh, than his book. Um, and so I just want to ask, you know, is that right? Am I, am I reading that right? Uh, you're not addressing it head on in the same way that he sort of is yeah. taking that 
issue head on. And he's more focused specifically on the religion clauses, not not just religion as a whole. Um, but anyway, I just want to ask, like, is that is do you, do you all take a different somewhat different approach? Am I getting that wrong? Um, well, sure. There's a lot there. Um, so I should <laughs> maybe interest of full disclosure. I mean, Professor Munoz and I have been friends for more than 20 years. And um, yeah, we talk all the time about this and a whole lot of other things. And we collaborate here at Notre Dame on a number of efforts to, uh, you know, enhance the, the teaching and the opportunities for our students on these matters. So I, um, he and I are definitely um, partners partners in this effort. Um, so you identified the exemptions problem as as being one that American law has had to deal with for a long time. And you're exactly right. I want to say, though, it's an old problem. The question of when, if ever, should a religious believer be exempted from an otherwise applicable law? That's one we've wrestled with for a long time, right? Quakers didn't want to have to sign up for the draft. This was something they talked about during the Constitutional Convention, you know? Um, and there's, it was the first real Supreme Court case that the, they ever decided dealing with the First Amendment had to do with um, the practice in um, the LDS church at the time of, of plural marriage and whether they could get an exemption from a law that banned polygamy. So these, these fights have been going on for a long time. Um, it is not the teaching of the church in Dignitatis that any time someone has a religious objection to a generally applicable law, that religious freedom means they have to get an exemption. Exemptions always involve a balance in terms of, um, you know, would it work grave damage to the common good uh, to provide an exemption? I think our approach has been, if you can provide an exemption, it's a good thing to do. It's consistent with the principle of free exercise of religion. So, you know, you could think of uh, a relatively recent case, which was, by the way, unanimous in the Supreme Court, it wasn't controversial, wasn't five to four, six to three, was a, a Muslim prisoner who wanted to grow a short beard in accord with his understanding of Islam. And the prison had a rule against beards. And the prison's reasons, they were thinking of big, shaggy, like ZZ top beards where you might hide a knife in there or something. Um, and the prisoner's like, no, I just want a, a short beard. Have you ever hidden a knife in their beard? Yeah, I don't who knows. <laughs> but, sorry, go ahead. Uh, but here's an, it's an example is everybody agrees that prisons are allowed to worry about prison discipline and prison mm -hmm. safety. So the question is, is an exemption appropriate here? And we have a federal law that says, look, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, especially in the prison context, if you can accommodate religion, you should try to. And the justices 9-0 said, yeah, this guy can grow his beard. Okay. Um, and there's a lot more examples, obviously. And you're right. Sometimes the church has been involved in these, especially recently, if you think about the contraception coverage mandate, or there was a case in Philadelphia involving foster care services and Catholic social services uh, didn't want to have to affirmatively certify um, uh, same-sex couples as foster parents and so on. But it's really important for listeners to hear this. The vast majority of exemptions cases have nothing to do with these so-called culture war issues, even though they get all the attention in the press. Um, I think I worry that a lot of our fellow citizens think that every exemptions case is about um, whether a baker wants to provide a cake to a same-sex wedding or has something to do with abortion. They don't. The vast majority are things like, you know, somebody, uh, somebody wants to be able to wear a yarmulke when they're taking their driver's license picture. Can we let them do that? Yeah, we can, even if we don't let people wear baseball caps generally. So that's that's the exemptions issue. It's a balance. Mm -hmm. Now, you asked a very perceptive question about Professor Munoz and I. He argues, and I agree with him, but um, 
in candor, I'm not, I, I don't think my two co-authors do, <laughs> that um, as the First Amendment itself, as it was originally understood, did not require courts to create exemptions from generally applicable laws. That, if you think about it, the debate about exemptions is not so much are they good things or bad things. I think Professor Munoz supports exemptions as a policy matter in many instances. Think about it this way. It's not should we have exemptions, it's a who decides question. And um, uh, there's a federal statute, for example, called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which because it's a statute, is not, it's not constitutional law, it's just a statute. The justices often agree, even though they have different views about the First Amendment, that, well, this statute requires an exemption. And it's a, pre it's a pretty generous exemption statute, actually. And my understanding is that Professor Munoz agrees with me that that statute is both permissible and good policy. But the real kind of technical debate is, look, was religious freedom that principle of free exercise? Did people understand that at the time of the founding as giving judges the power to create exemptions from generally applicable laws? And Philip's argument is that no, it was not, and he you know, makes a historical case for this, it was, it was not so understood. Um, and I, I actually, again, tend to agree with him. Now, some people would say, well, you know, that was how people thought in the 1700s. We, we shouldn't interpret the Constitution and lock down to its original meaning like that. I happen to think we should care about the original meaning of the Constitution. So I'm, again, aligned with Professor Munoz on this. Um, so I don't think the differences are all that big insofar as we have them, it might be on this issue of um, is the exemptions decision-making process one that should be left to administrators and legislatures and states, or should federal courts using the First Amendment have the power to create exemptions on their own? Mm -hmm. Well, there's one other question I really wanted to get to. Speaking of, of you and your colleague, although this isn't about him, but it's something we asked him as well. That's that, as you know, we, we live in a time when there are some some Catholics, primarily they seem to be kind of in the academy, who might want to argue that the American constitutional experiment has failed, uh, that it's, and you know, you frame it as an experiment. There are some people who look at these founding principles and say, well, look where it's gotten us. You know, it's wh where we are now is just look around that's often the argument is like just look around is this is this really could we really say that the common good is being promoted by in our with our are the conditions favorable for the common good in our society today and so i just want to know again this may be conversa conversations you've had um even in person so i wonder how you know how do you respond and what do you say to a person who doesn't who looks at your principles that you lay out and says, well, I don't agree with some of those principles. Does that, can they still be a good citizen? Maybe those are kind of two different questions. So I apologize for that, but. Um... No, no, they're, they're all, they're all great questions. I mean, so you're right. Uh, and I, I noticed this more among some young people among faithful Catholics uh, who they do look at kind of all sorts of cultural developments and policy developments and say, as you put it, man, this American constitutional experiment doesn't seem to be yielding results that we can really endorse. And that might well be true. I mean, I, I think there's all kinds of things we can identify, uh, policies that are in place and um, things that are happening in the culture and so on that uh, that as Catholics, we we regret. Um, I guess one thing is that it, there aren't many constitutional, there aren't many legal orders in a free society that can guarantee that the um, legal outputs and policy outputs are always going to be 
the right ones. Um, a lot of these developments that are producing the bad things we see out there in the world, in my view, they're not the fault of legal doctrine. And you, and frankly, you couldn't fix them by trying to reconstitutionalize Christendom as it existed in the 13th century. Um, however, whatever merits that arrangement might have had at the time, it is the case that the culture has changed in many ways that are, let's say, suboptimal from a faithful Catholic perspective. And it's true that our, there are some features of our American constitutional order that can't guard against that. So, you know, it is true that there are some religious beliefs and some religious practices that um, that as Catholics, we probably think are deeply misguided um, that still get protection. Uh, there are some government policies, whether, you know, perhaps in the realm of marriage and family and pro-life and all that, that we we as faithful Catholics might really think are misguided. And and our constitutional order isn't going to save us from them. Um, it's going to have to be a function of changing hearts and minds and, um, you know, political action and uh, slow cultural change. So I still believe, notwithstanding my disagreements with some of these theorists you're talking about, um, I still believe both that my colleagues and I, my co-authors and I, we're right about what the American experiment was. So I think sometimes they mischaracterize it as having been kind of aggressively secularizing um, that, you know, that it was foreordained that that Jefferson's anti-religious views were always going to bring us to the point we're at now. I, I don't think that's accurate. Um, so I think we're I think we've described the experiment correctly. And I think that generally speaking, at least with respect to church state relations and religious freedom, our law is pretty good. Perfect. No, but pretty good and better than any place else I can think of. Um, including some of the countries that some of these folks sometimes point to. Um, does that mean that there are, are there areas where our constitutional order has kind of gone off the rails? I think there are, you know, um, but, and that's a subject for a constitutional law class maybe. And are there areas where we have policies that, that we might well regret? Yes, there are. But I still think again, that the basic outlines of the American approach to religious freedom is one that lines up well with um with the Second Council, with Dignitatis Humanae, and I think it lines up well with producing uh, kind of this side of heaven, an optimal arrangement for living in a pluralistic world. Professor Garnett, I know we're running out of time, but it seems like it's, this is, it's a long, would you say the experiment is, it's still going on, right? I mean, it's, we're living it. You know, I think of science, right? You ha usually have an end site and goal or controls yeah. and all that. But we're, what we're talking about is a living, breathing experiment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, my colleague, we, we, uh, John Witte has a line. It's it's still in the book. It's, uh, it's something pithy like the American experiment in religious freedom is, I think to your words, is uh, in shape, but also in progress. And uh, there are things happening in the world to which the American approach is going to have to maybe adapt or at least confront. So here's just one. Um, we know from social science data that a lot more people than ever in American history will identify themselves as having no religion or at least no religious affiliation. When you dig down, a lot of them are still pretty religious. You know, just what they worship might be different or they, they, they're spiritual, but not religious, all these kinds of things. We are really seeing an institutional disaffiliation. Uh, this is true in the Catholic context, uh, unfortunately, but it's it's true generally. Um, I think it remains to be seen how 
strong America's constitutional commitment to religious freedom will be when we have fewer and fewer people who uh, who not only profess a religious uh, belief, but who identify with a religious community and a tradition, right? If religion becomes, is watered down to being entirely a subjective, individualistic hobby, it's going to be seen as kind of a luxury item. So there are scholars, very prominent scholars in the law school world anyway, who say, look, we should get rid of the category of religion altogether. Religion's not special. It's just something people care about. But people care about lots of things. So we don't need religious freedom. We can protect free speech and we can protect equality. And that'll get us to the same place. You know, some people like the Boston Red Sox. Some people like ice fishing. Some people like the Eucharist, whatever, to each his own. We don't need religious freedom as a special category. Now, the American experiment always rejected that. Religion is distinct. It's special. It's duties to God. It mattered. Religion was a limit on the government, not something that the government kind of in its good graces allowed people to do, right? There was always this sense that religious obligations are higher and prior uh, to political ones. I do have some concerns that as this disaffiliation continues, that our commitment to that priority might water down. And that could be, that would be dangerous. Yeah, I recently uh, read a book um, where the author he was basically arguing that kind of to make the case for a religious freedom case in a, in a popular sense, not in a legal sense, but um, that you would talk about religion in terms of identity. Right. Um, and that because that is something that people would understand. And so and, and he was talking about this in terms of trying to show how religious people and LGBT um, people you know, both are kind of like face the same set of concerns. They see these things as like a threat to their identity and yes, all this. And, and just in reading that description, I was like, well, I guess there's an aspect of Catholicism that's part of my identity, but it's but it's not only my I, I just don't I don't think my being Catholic is the same thing as as, as like other aspects of identity. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like the dogmas come from outside of myself, you know? Yes. Anyway, so I was kind of like, I don't know, this just seems like a really foreign way to understand what my religion is for. Yeah, me. I think you're really onto something. I know the book that you mean. I guess we could separate two questions. One is, in today's world, given the way people think and talk, is emphasizing identity in these discussions likely to be politically effective? And the answer to that question might be yes. It might be that that's just how for all kinds of reasons, people are obsessed with thinking of themselves in terms of what their identity is and their multiplied identities and their overlapping identities. And so maybe that's rhetorically a place where religious freedom can get some purchase. Nevertheless, um, in the American experiment, it is more than that, right? Uh, religion is also about genuine relationship with and obligation to uh, the, the creator God. And uh there again has to be a sense that i mean you know if part of my identity is that i went to duke university and love duke basketball the government doesn't need to treat that the same way as it needs to treat the fact that i'm entitled to participate in a religious community called the roman catholic church that gets to pick its own priests those are different things and there's a dangerous in my view sort of watering down and again kind of excessive subjectivizing of religion in this i in this identity talk and yet it might still be the case that that's the way for some purposes you need to talk about it in policy debates 
but I do think those of us who are um, believers, especially those of us who are Catholics, who have this really rich tradition to draw on about what it means to be a human person, what you know, what human nature is, what human dignity involves, we don't need to kind of toss aside this rich language we have for this kind of thin gruel of contemporary identity politics. Mm -hmm. Professor Garnett, I really appreciate um, your taking time to join us today. This has been a really good conversation. I've enjoyed the book. Um, so thank you so much for, for chatting with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. It's been interesting. Thank you. Yes. We've been talking with Dr. Richard Garnett of the University of Notre Dame about uh, his book, Religion and the American Constitutional Experiment, fifth edition. A helpful reference for anyone interested in these questions. Uh, I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for listening to this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Mm -hmm.